In many ways, 1969 was a historic year in the United States. Richard Nixon was sworn in as president. I, Richard Billhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully... Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The World Series was won by the Miracle Mets. The Mets are the world champions. And in August of that year, a once-in-a-lifetime, generation-defining moment occurred involving thousands of people. Cameras were there to capture this event that still gets talked about to this day. The following year, 1970, a documentary of this event hit theaters, and even if you missed it, now you could be there. It looks like we're going to get a little bit of rain, so you better cover up. If it does, and if, you, if we should have any slight power problem, just move it out. It's really amazing, man. It looks like some kind of uh, biblical, epical, unbelievable scene. This thing was too big. <laughs> it was too big for the world. I'll say one thing for the young people. They've been very nice, all of them. I think skinny dipping is just beautiful if you if you want to do it, if you can do it. But um, some people can't. What do you think about the kids? It's a disgraceful mess if you want to know the answer. Woodstock from Warner Brothers. A little help from our friends. Woodstock. The concert of a lifetime that featured bands like Jimi Hendrix, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane became a feature film that showed everything you missed. The music, the hippies, the weed, the local upstate New Yorkers reacting to it all. And it's no surprise that the movie, released in March of 1970, became a hit. It cost less than a million dollars to make and took in over 16 million at the box office, making it one of the top 10 grossing films of the year. It was praised by critics for its innovative use of split screens, and the general public ate it up. At the Academy Awards, it racked up three Oscar nominations. Best Sound, Best Editing, and the one win it got, Best Documentary. And the winner is Woodstock, Bob Murray. It was easy money. And if there's one thing the industry loves, it's easy money. So the question was, if Woodstock was the easy path to box office gold, not to mention Oscar gold, how do you duplicate it? How do you make a sequel of sorts to Woodstock? My name is Dan Delgado, and today we're talking about how Warner Brothers attempted to recreate the concert event of a lifetime in an episode we're calling, We Have Come for Your Dollars. Welcome to the industry. Presented by Movie Maker. The Woodstock documentary proved to be a cash cow that Warner Brothers could milk a number of times. Once it was released nationwide, its box office gross tallied $50 million. It was re-released into theaters again in 1976, a director's cut hit theaters in 1994, and a 40th anniversary DVD and Blu-ray was released in 2009. And what did Warners pay to get those Woodstock rights? $50,000. Fred Weintraub, who owned the Bottom Line nightclub in New York, who featured uh, and, and sort of promoted a lot of acts that became famous later on in the 60s, became a producer at Warner Brothers Films sort of at the end of the 60s. And one of his 
first things that he did uh, for the Warner Brothers studio was to convince them to send a film crew up to Bethel, New York to film this um, this little rock festival that was going on there. And there was a lot of skepticism. People didn't think it was going to amount to much, but he did get the funding at the last minute. And of course, that turned out to be Woodstock, which was, of course, a decade-defining event. The film that resulted from that was a huge success and won the Oscar for the Best Documentary the following year. And so his star was really uh, on the rise, and Warner Brothers wanted to see if lightning would strike twice. This is Rick Willett. It's his blog, Real and Rock, that brought me to the attention of something called the Medicine Ball Caravan. Because America was conquered from... Uh, from east to west, here we wanted to go from west to east. So the, the, the idea of the caravan, it was to go from uh, San Francisco to Washington, D.C. and finish on the front of the White House and to do a concert here. This is Gerard Chevalier, owner of one of the greatest French accents I have ever heard. These days, Gerard is a therapist in the U.K., He's one of the people who started Narcotics Anonymous in France. But back in 1970, Gerard was the assistant to the acclaimed documentary filmmaker Francois Reichenbach. When I spoke with Gerard, his wife, well, I think it was his wife, was moving things around in the background, so keep that in mind with his audio. And while I've read that the idea for the Medicine Ball Caravan came from a number of different people, like Fred Weintraub, for example, Gerard is the one guy who told me it was his idea. I was uh, the first assistant of a French director called Francois Reichenbach. And we, he was uh, very uh, talented to make documentary. And we made documentary about Arthur Rubinstein uh, with a pianist. And uh, another one about Yehudi Menuhin with the violinist. And we did win, he did win, I mean, I say we, he did win an Oscar. Reichenbach's film, The Love of Life, won Best Documentary in 1969 at the Academy Awards. So now, with a little bit of clout behind them, Gerard had an idea for what the next film he and Reichenbach should do. Me, I was what we call uh, maybe you, 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 uh, EP, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I was really involved with uh, the Mayflower movement and I heard that John Lennon, the Beatles, wanted to do a caravan from Toronto to Washington, D.C. and he canceled it. Uh, he wanted to make a caravan on the process of love and peace. Do you see what I mean? But he canceled it. So uh, I, I said to Rishenbach, with the with an Oscar, uh, we got a lot of power to go to LA and try to create a caravan on our own. And Woodstock was a great inspiration for us because Woodstock came out and cinematographically, uh, we were very impressed because they used three screen, 16 millimeter three screen for the film. But how do you start a caravan? Gerard knew a writer at Rolling Stone, John Carpenter, not the filmmaker, 
who told him how to get it started. Warner Brothers already had a catalog of band that was quite attractive. They, I, say, I don't exactly remember, but I think they had uh, Jefferson Airplane, they had Jenny Joplin's. Uh, so they have some quite of a, you know, well-established uh, band. Warner Brothers was ready to produce it. So the money was not an issue. They were ready to produce it because they say, because of the Oscar. You see what I mean? So John Carpenter said to us, there is only one guy who can do that. He's in San Francisco and he's called Tom Donahue. Tom Donahue was a charismatic DJ who programmed the station KFRC out of San Francisco. He also organized live shows, produced bands, came up with the freeform radio format, and is one of three DJs to be entered into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Very charismatic guy. You know, a little bit like Orson Welles type of, uh, you know, projection, yeah. Donahue had a close relationship with the Grateful Dead, and the guys behind the caravan really wanted the dead on the tour. At one point, the idea was to have the dead and Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters and 150 hippies all traveling across the country with other bands, mostly acts from the Warner Brothers label, joining in at various stops. Francois Reichenbach and his French film crew would document it all. Think of it as a traveling Woodstock, because that's exactly how Warner Brothers thought of it. But instead of the merry pranksters, the caravan god counterculture clown Wavy Gravy and his followers, the Hog Farm, which isn't really a bad replacement. But the big problem was that the Grateful Dead backed out too. Now the caravan needed a touring band for their tour, and they turned to Stoneground. Stoneground was a band formed out of the Bay Area and fronted by Sal Valentino, the former lead singer of the Bo Brummels. Bo Brummels, by the way, had a few hits in the 1960s and were managed and produced by Tom Donahue, the man who is now producing The Caravan. Also, Stoneground did not exist before The Caravan. They were basically put together specifically for this tour. They'd serve as the house band, playing at every stop on the tour. So we had all walk of life. We had doctors, cook. So the idea was to have uh, 25 school bus completely repented into tie-dye to have 30 TP, Indian TP, tie-dye. So the tie-dye buses were loaded up. Getting on board, you had DJ Tom Donahue, Mylon Melvin, a record producer and DJ who would serve as the caravan leader of sorts, Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm, the band Stoneground, a French film crew, a couple of accountants from Warner Brothers to keep track of expenses, and around 150 hippies. So I was an actress at the time, and I was doing uh, theater in New Mexico, and the gig ended, and it was time for me to get onto the plane and fly home. I had uh, a roommate who was expecting me home. I had bills to pay. I had uh, to look for a job, et cetera, et cetera. This is Jackie Weisberg. These days, she's a professional photographer in Brooklyn. But back in 1970, she was an unemployed actress in New Mexico. That's when a friend asked her to come along to see B.B. King playing out somewhere in the valley. I went with these people who I have no idea who they were. And I was very, very stoned. 
and um, sitting with all these people watching B.B. Uh, King. But before B.B. King even performed, these people were on the stage area talking about this caravan. And they said, we want to bring some more people on board with us. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, Dan. It's, it's, it's very, you know, embarrassing now. But at the time, it wasn't embarrassing. And they said... So we're going to have a beauty contest. So whatever girls want to come up here on the stage, and we're going to vote which one is the pretty one gets to go, which is really, I don't think I told anybody that, but maybe I have. So anyhow, sure enough, I get up there in my skimpy little clothes, in my fuzzy head, being an actress, you know, doing the thing, and it's okay, you're the winner. So that's how I got to get on to the caravan. And for Jackie, as likely it was for most of the hippies on the tour, the caravan experience was a great one. It was very communal. I mean, there really were no fights that I, you know, that I saw. It was a lot of making love, not war, and chill. And it was great. I met one of my very closest friends there. Uh, he was my a very close friend of mine for so many, many years until he died a few years ago. That's not to say the caravan didn't have its problems. For what it was meant to do, it had a lot of problems. One was the French film crew. They spoke little to no English. They weren't familiar with the American counterculture, and they didn't do drugs. They had no idea what they were getting into. We had uh, all feel of like all these people were freaks. <laughs> this what I mean. they, they were smoking dope, uh, taking LSD, I mean, there is some funny story that uh, Rischenberg and the French crew who were very straight, uh, were drinking some uh, potion that was made up by the Oxford, and suddenly they were tripping on LSD. It didn't take long for the straight French crew to be just as stoned as everyone else on the caravan. I mean, the crew basically got out of their heads. They never took drugs before. They were what we call straight. I mean, when the French crew arrived in L.A., uh, I remember Mylan and Tom saying, what the hell is that? I mean, they're so straight. They're not going... They're so straight. We have to put a wig. They have to put a wig, otherwise they're going to get killed. I'm joking, but, but you know what I mean? And when you have the people who are supposed to be responsible tripping on LSD, that's how you end up with a story like this. I was in the bus with Francois' film crew, the French film crew, and it was in a Winnebago van. I was sleeping like on a platform that was right behind the driver, and they were taking turns driving, and I was sleeping. And there was a, a woman who was not a part of the film crew, but was on the caravan, I think. I remember her name being Maureen, but I'm not 100% sure. So apparently she'd been driving for a long time or whatever. But in any case, she fell asleep at the wheel when we were uh, in um, Boulder. And it was 6 o'clock in the morning. And she fell asleep at the wheel. And the Winnebago went off the road and tumbled, went over a few times and landed down off of the road somewhere. And it landed on the only door out of the Winnebago. And there was smoke. 
because there was, you know, a, a, a gas range there, and there was a little bit of fire. So we landed on the side where the door was, and in front of us, you know, or on top of us was the, the windshield, but we couldn't get out. And everybody was screaming because we were going to die. And I'm not making this up, but I know that I said I can't, I can't be with these screaming people. I saw the little corner for myself in the Winnebago. I sat down and I just started praying to God that I would die of smoke inhalation and not feel the flames. And then some guy who had been on a motorcycle saw what had happened to us. He jumped up. I mean, I didn't see this. I have no, you know, we never saw this. Apparently, he came up off his motorcycle, but we did see him once he jumped on top of the windshield and with his motorcycle boots started stamping to make a hole in the windshield so that we could get out one by one. And everybody started to scream because they wanted to get out, you know, kind of all at once. And I waited till everybody got out, and I was the last one out. He pulled me out. We started to run. And as we were running up this berm, it exploded. Fortunately, everyone was okay. Everyone with the exception of the reels of footage that was in the Winnebago. That's where Warner Brothers got really pissed off with that. Because the one who was driving the Winnebago uh, was Christian Odasso. And uh, I think he was completely out of his head. That was one problem. Another problem came from a guy named Tom Forsad. At the time of the Medicine Ball Caravan, Tom Forsad was mostly known as the uh, the guy behind the under, Underground Press Syndicate, which was kind of a consortium of different underground papers across the country. It was kind of like a a trade group, I guess. You know, he wasn't he wasn't in charge of the underground papers, but more in charge of the coordination between them. This is Sean Howe. He is currently writing a biography about Forsad. Forsad may be best known for starting the magazine High Times in 1974. But in 1970, he had his own role in the Medicine Ball Caravan. Troublemaker. Forsad had taken a Cadillac and done a lot of conversions to it, added a lot of kind of bells and whistles, uh, including a stage on, that he's you know, fixed onto the top. And the band David Peel in the Lower East Side from New York would play songs on that stage, and they were, they were generally pretty antagonistic songs, sometimes specifically against Warner Brothers and the record industry. Farsad painted a big star on his tricked-out Cadillac and called it the Star Car. He then followed the caravan around with what he called the Caravan of Pirates. And there was kind of a, a rotating cast of caravan members who would, you know, ride for a while in that Cadillac until they couldn't stand the hijinks anymore. Forsad and the star car kept setting up near the caravan and basically would taunt them. Eventually, this all came to a head at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. They drove over to the campus and there were already, uh, I guess, a, a bunch of students who were kind of worked up about the sellout that they saw that the Medicine Ball Caravan was. And because the star car, you know, had had musicians, you know, that were playing on top on the stage 
because everyone was kind of dressed in sort of strange costumes, the students decided that these guys must be part of the Warner Brothers machine. And so there began to be this confrontation between the students and Forsad and, and his group of people. Forsad was basically saying, no, you know, we're on your side. I, you know, I'm, I'm with the White Panthers. Warner Brothers is the enemy and we can take you to them. About this time, a guy named Chan Laughlin, he was part of the, the caravan. He came by, heard Forsad bad-mouthing Warner Brothers, got into it with Forsad and David Peel. And so there's this, you know, kind of climactic moment in the movie where, you know, he pulls out a knife and goes for David Peel and Forsad kind of jumps into the fray as well. And you've got basically a three sides. <laughs> you've got the students, you've got Forsad and David Peel, and you've you've got Laughlin who is a part of the caravan and they're all suspicious of each other and screaming at each other. We went to Antioch University. Uh, they, they really pushed us that they were saying we were only part of the establishment. And, uh, you know, what Warner Brother represents was really not cool. I remember there were fights. I remember there was some violence. But I walked away from them. My friend Miles and I and a few other people, we were like, we don't want to have any part of that. I mean, I don't say they were right or wrong. Me, I'm, a, you know, I was uh, uh, trying to step out of the politics because I'm not American and uh, also uh, I was more involved with the filming. Eventually, things got back to normal. Fortunately, no one was actually hurt in the knife attack on David Peel and the caravan moved on. But here's the funny thing about Tom Frassad and the Medicine Ball Caravan. He was being paid by Warner Brothers. He had been brought on to the Medicine Ball Caravan by Michael Foreman, who was a producer uh, for Warner Brothers. Some people think that he was brought on to kind of provide a little more drama for the film. So even though he acted as a kind of um, fly in the ointment, <laughs> you know, kind of, needling the caravan and criticizing the caravan for selling out. It's possible that he actually was just paid by Warner Brothers to play that role. So what exactly was going on here? Was Farsad just providing some drama for the movie, or was he legit? Well, the, the thing about Tom Farsad is that almost everything is a little ambiguous. So I don't know that I would say that you know, he was really just kind of a fake agitator. He likely had feelings against Warner Brothers and was probably kind of playing both sides a little bit. But he was invited to go on the caravan at the behest of someone who was helping to make the caravan for Warner Brothers. David Peel, the musician who performed on top of Forsad's car and was unsuccessfully attacked with a knife, passed away in 2017. Here he is talking about his role in the Medicine Ball Caravan in a documentary about Forsyth. He wanted me and my band, the Lower East Side, to uh, go to a counter rally for the Medicine Ball Caravan. He saw a woodstock on the road being exploded by Warner Brothers. Okay, so he flew me in. Me and my band, the Lower East Side, joined the caravan and called ourselves the Caravan of Pirates. These guys were shell-shocked that we could counterpoint the so-called exploitation 
of a, a movie film on the road at another Woodstock. And we did that. We stopped him. We put him in there. We put him in a place. And then the uh, next time we saw the uh, producer for the movie, after we saw the screening, I said to the producer, be careful who you fuck with next time. Have a good day. The thing about it is that Warner Brothers was absolutely exploiting these hippies for a movie. And the people on the caravan knew that. But they just looked at it differently. In my opinion, and in everybody else's opinion, what was going down was they wanted to make this movie, um, bringing in, you know, the talent and making sure that all of these hippies were stoned all the time, that we were tripping all the time, uh, making love all the time, digging the music all the time, and acting like they felt the culture was. And it was. So, you know, they were kind of like feeding us all the drugs and paraphernalia and opportunity to do all those things. And we said, fuck, all right, you know, I'm down with that. And, you know, I need some weed. So you go to like the commissary or wherever we got it, or we wanted some LSD or we wanted some peyote. I remember once going out into the desert and hooking up with these Indians and having mushrooms. I mean, they just let us do they wanted us to do all that stuff and we wanted to do it so it was it was a very um amiable agreement they thought they were manipulating us and we thought we were manipulating them when it comes to the corporate aspect of the caravan if you will consider this paragraph from an article in the village voice that covered the tour in Kearney, nebraska francois had joni mitchell flown in from la to casually drop in and sit around the campfire and sing for the cameras to go through countless choruses of get-together while he constantly exhorted the people around the campfire to sing louder and with more feeling, all while asking a girl with an attractively tanned bare midriff to move closer to Joni so that the camera could catch some skin. This was written by Ron Rosenbaum, a journalist who rode with the caravan and with Forsad's group. Rosenbaum wrote how many of the people on the caravan expressed the same thought that you heard Jackie say. We were manipulating them! So much so, they were getting free drugs from Warner Brothers. The dust-up at Antioch College was the second confrontation the caravan had. The first was in Colorado and involved a group known as the STP family. The STP family was a, it was kind of like a commune gone wrong in the Colorado area. Um, I've seen them described and I don't want to portray them too inaccurately, but I've, uh, I've seen them described as the kind of guys who would do a lot of speed and try to punch out bears. Um, <laughs> the kind of like hippie biker types who maybe been out in the wilderness a little too long. And the STP family had an issue with the caravan, the same one that Tom Fursad had, that they were sellouts. But things were fortunately resolved thanks to Wavy Gravy coming in and calming the situation down. After the incident at Antioch, the caravan prepared to finish up their run with a concert in Washington, D.C. Out of the blue, I get a call from a guy named Mylon Melvin. When we chat, and he said, you know, somebody in, in California said that you manage a band and they've got a farm outside of Washington, D.C. We've got this thing called the Medicine Ball Caravan. We're driving across the country and we're doing concerts at different stops and we need a place to pitch our tents uh, right before the Washington concert. 
And then we'd like to leave our trucks and things with you because we're flying to Europe to continue this. This is Michael Oberman. Michael's been writing about the music industry for most of his life. In 1970, he was also managing a band named Claude Jones that was based out of a farm in Virginia when the Medicine Ball Caravan came calling. So I went out to the farm and talked to the band and explained, you know, it's wavy gravy and acts like Alice Cooper and Hot Tuna and it should be fun. And I said, they're making a movie and it's a French director named Francois Reichenbach. And he's not a, a small deal. But I said, okay. I called Mylon. The band says, you're welcome to stay on the farm. I said, but you're going to have a hard time finding it. The road that the farm is on isn't marked. So why don't we meet you guys in Warrington, Virginia? So when you get to Warrington, go to a payphone, call the farm, and we'll come meet you. So Michael gets the call and heads out to meet up with Mylon Melvin. They called from a gas station. and myself and the band's road manager and one of our equipment men drove to the gas station and I had a giant smile on my face because I was looking at this psychedelically painted bus that was flying Viet Cong flags and had a sign on the front that said, we've come for your daughters. This is redneck country. We are already just on the cusp of being run out of Dodge you have a black drummer. We're a bunch of hippies. There's dope being smoked on the farm every day. There's people in and out to Milan. Milan was driving like a chopped Harley and, you know, straight out of Easy Rider. And people were, you know, laying on the ground in the gas station. People were, you know, it was more than just one bus. It was a caravan. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a crazy couple of days. The caravan hits the farm, and the usual hippie hijinks happen. There's drugs. There were a lot of psychedelics being done on that farm, too, by, by the medicine ball caravan. You know, I mean, they, they offered us everything from mescaline and peyote to psilocybin mushrooms, etc. There's skinny dipping. And they pitched the, the, the teepees. We had a mile of the Rappahannock River running through our farm. So they pitched down in a gully. And there are trees beyond the tents, but beyond those trees was a river. So they could go swimming if they wanted to. And actually, we took them to a neighboring hippie farm where they all got undressed and and had some nude skinny dipping. But something isn't right. What got me, what really hit me, that first of all, if you think about it, these people had been on the road. So we were the last stop. They're living in teepees. They're living on a bus driving across the country. You know that nerves are going to be ragged. And there was something that wasn't just quite right. And where it, it really showed itself to me that first night, it was someone in the caravan. I have no idea who it was. It was their birthday. They lit campfires, and people sat around, and they were singing happy birthday. And Francois Reichenbach comes down and says, cut. That's not a take. Let's do it again. And I thought, wait a second. They're making a documentary. And he's cutting in the middle of happy birthday. There's, there was something too staged for my liking. Francois Reichenbach attempted to stage a number of things for the movie. An appearance by Joni Mitchell in Colorado, for example, didn't go very well for that exact reason. 
And I also remember that they flew Joni Mitchell in. And she was not happy. <laughs> she did not like the, uh, being used or whatever she felt. I was right next to her. You know, she, got these, she came in and I flew her in. And I don't even think that she, she played at any of the concerts. I think maybe she just said, oh, this is not for me. For this, Rosenbaum wrote, Two studio accountants followed the caravan across the country in a huge station wagon. In the mornings, they would leave their motel, drive to the campsite, and sit in the rear of the wagon with their adding machine and cash box, ministering to a long line of picturesque hippies, each with a fistful of receipts. One caravan member brought some cocaine for himself and for some friends and handed the accountant a slip of paper with the purchase price and the words, Coke for Everyone, written on it. The figure was tapped out of the adding machine and paid. But back on the farm in Virginia a new problem arose for Michael Oberman. It was fun for a few moments, but what happened was the we have come for your daughters and Viet Cong flags didn't go over very well in Warrington or Culpeper, Virginia. And state police planes began buzzing our farm while those tie-dye teepees were up. And we had a, a local cop tell one of the guys in the band in a grocery store hey, you know, the state cops are going to bust you. If they don't find anything on your farm, they will find something anyway. So the Medicine Ball Caravan is part of the reason why the Claude Jones Amoeba Farm folded. Yep, you heard that right. The tensions between the police and the farm that grew from the Medicine Ball Caravan's appearance led to the end of that farm. You know, when you've got 130 to 150 hippies descending on this small town in Virginia, redneck town, and, you know, Warrington is not all redneck anymore. It's, it's got its boutique stores, et cetera. Culpepper's got its boutique stores. You know, you know what year it was, and this is Virginia, you know, 60 miles outside of Washington, D.C., 70 miles out of Washington, D.C. So... They were part of the demise, and I would say 70% of the demise of the farm. What happened after a couple of nights on the farm is they went to D.C. and they did their concert. And if you were to ask me which of, which of the acts played, I have no idea. I didn't go to the concert. I had no desire. I had seen enough. The caravan went off to D.C. and played their final show in the U.S., and you would have thought that allowing the caravan to stay on your farm would get your band in the show. Claude Jones play at that concert? Yes. No. They were staying at your farm. Couldn't they let them in the concert? You know, that part of my memory is foggy as to why we didn't play the concert, whether they had... Because when you're playing in D.C. outdoors on park property, you have a permit. And you have the permit for X amount of hours, including set up, tear down, clean up, et cetera. And they had a lineup of acts. And I just, my guess is they just couldn't squeeze another act on. And while the caravan moved on, they left lots of stuff behind on the farm in Virginia. They left a truck. It was the size of like an Allied moving van, but it was an old truck. And it was painted green and welded to the top of the truck was either the top half of a old Hudson or a Packard. So it was like a sleeping loft that you could go up into the top of the truck 
and sleep up there or as they were driving equipment, you know, give the finger to, to whoever you want out the window. Well, they left that. And John Hall, who was our equipment man, took it to a place where he was crashing in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And it was too big to be legal in the street. And the police confiscated it and found, unfortunately, on the inside of the truck, major weaponry, crossbows and swords and other stuff. So John got popped by the Tacoma Park police, but he got off. He, you know, the explanation ended up ringing true to them that this belonged to this thing called the Medicine Ball Caravan, and they're in Europe, and I just drove it from our farm in Warrington and Culpeper to, to here, and, uh, you know, by chance you guys found it. Eventually, Warner Brothers picked everything up. The caravan had gone on to Europe, though. According to Gerard, that was not originally part of the plan. The plan developed to go to Isle of Wight maybe uh, 10 days before we arrived in Washington, D.C. I mean, Russian Bath was concerned that we didn't have enough footage, that he was concerned that he, he didn't feel that he had enough material to make an impact. The concert at the Isle of Wight in England was the final stop on the Medicine Ball Caravan tour. There, the show went off without a hitch. It should be also noted that it was less attended. Only about 1,500 people showed up to the free concert, mainly because the Isle of Wight Music Festival was happening on the same day. Now it was time to edit all the footage. Gerard and Francois Reichenbach headed to Paris to put the movie together. This did not go off without a hitch. The edit suite in Paris, the more we were looking at it, uh, you know, the feeling was, uh, it's not too good. It's not great. <laughs> okay. And because it's, what was not great, it was not the quality of the, of the, the <coughs> cinematography. It was... How can we stitch up a story around what we got? When Warner Brothers saw the cut of the movie that they just spent over a million dollars on, they were not happy. And Warner Brothers was saying, listen, it's not too good. You know, you said, what? It's not great. Uh, and uh, we did, uh, they said, I'm sorry, guys. It's not great. We had to do a little bit more. And we have been uh, asking uh, another executive producer. And the other executive producer is Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese was recruited by Warners to essentially save the movie after the original cut was rejected. At this point in his career, Scorsese had not yet done Mean Streets, the movie that put him on the Hollywood map. But his involvement here makes perfect sense. Not only was he part of the team that edited the Oscar-nominated for editing Woodstock documentary, but he was also dating Sandra Weintraub, the daughter of Fred Weintraub, who was producing The Medicine Ball Caravan and had previously produced Woodstock. Scorsese flew to Los Angeles. It was his first time out there and began what he thought would be a two-week editing job. Instead, it turned into a nine-month nightmare. Apparently, the French film crew was so high during filming that much of the hours of film they took were either mislabeled, blank, out of focus, or missing audio tracks. It was a mess. Scorsese said of the film, 
It was nine hours long, and nobody knew what was happening. It had no continuity. Nothing. It was a monstrous job, and we did so many technical effects. I mean, you can only do so much when there's no content. When he was done, Scorsese's cut of The Medicine Ball Caravan ran a mere 90 minutes, which is less than half of the runtime of the Woodstock documentary. Another telling sign of the bad footage is what's missing from the movie. Acts like Van Morrison, Hot Tuna, the campfire sing-along with Joni Mitchell, and the entire Isle of Wight concert, which featured Pink Floyd and Rod Stewart, are all not in the final cut. So what do you get? Band-wise, you get B.B. King, The Young Bloods, a relatively unknown Alice Cooper, Delaney and Bonnie, Doug Kershaw, and of course, plenty of stone ground. And the rest of the movie? The hippies freaking out the squares of middle America? Well, it's not really in the movie. Here's how Rick Willette summed it up. You know, this is going to be, you know, the sort of the, the face of the of the hippie movement that they were going to go and come and get your daughters and kids <laughs> into this uh, hippie rock and roll world. But a lot of that doesn't really happen. And the film is sort of a lot of, is a series of, you know, the bus breaks down or they have to get a mechanic to help work on the bus. And then they set up the teepees. And then every once in a while, there's a music sequence and what's there is good. I mean, there's B.B. King playing, I think north of Albuquerque, they had a stage, an outdoor concert. That footage of B.B. King is particularly good, probably the highlight of the film. Yeah, no, the, the people, at least the people that are interviewed are either supportive or tolerant of of the hippies. You know, it's something to do. Well, here's this huge caravan of long-haired hippies and pretty girls and and uh, anybody they do interview seems happy to talk to a film crew. And, you know. <laughs> and like I said, and the people that they think they're going to have trouble with are are sort of supportive. And the people that are supposedly on their side, like the, the campus radicals and uh, other elements like that, have no purpose for it. One year later... On August 25, 1971, Warner Brothers released The Medicine Ball Caravan into theaters. Needless to say, it was no Woodstock. Reviews were not kind, and it quickly faded away. Even the people involved did not have anything good to say about the movie. I think it did last uh, two weeks. So uh, it's, uh, it was what we call in our business a flop. How do you feel about the finished film? Like, when you watch it, what do you think of it? I'm not feeling good, yeah. There is no, you know, making a film about the EP, smoking dope, uh, free love. uh, The story was not impactful to to create a, a documentary. I saw the movie, they, I think they screened it for us in a theater, and it was, you know, very poor. But I didn't care then, and I don't care now, because the end product meant nothing to me. What mattered to me was the really great time I was having uh, while on the caravan. That was, like, the best time. And it wasn't until years later that I found a DVD copy of the film. Now, realize I ended up working for Warner Electric Atlantic. So I knew this existed. 
not just from them being on the farm, but because I worked for the record company that was putting this out and had put up a lot of money to do this. Well, I got that DVD, and I swear it was one of the worst DVDs I've ever watched. The movie was also released under a different title, We Have Come for Your Daughters, named for the banner that was on one of the buses. In fact, the IMDb listing for the movie is under this title rather than Medicine Ball Caravan. And after its quick time in theaters, the movie faded into obscurity and has stayed there. There was no VHS release, but there is a DVD out there. You can find it if you look hard enough. And while to Warner Brothers and the rest of the world, the movie was a flop, to those who were on the caravan, those who trekked across the country in buses, slept in teepees, and tripped their way through America in August of 1970, it was an amazing experience. That, you know, it's obviously it's the biggest party uh, of my life, uh, paired by Warner Brother. I mean, it's like Warner Brother spent three million, three million pounds to give us a party. I mean, the reason this thing has legs, it's because it, it, it really was um, kind of, it was unique. It was stupid. <laughs> From a money-making point of view, for sure. From an aesthetic point of view, for sure. The movie itself really had nothing to recommend it as far as I could see. But for those of us who were in it, it was very emblematic of a time and a place that is like, for instance, very different from where we are now. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. If you're a movie fan or a movie maker yourself, there's something for you at MovieMaker.com. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by Dan Delgado. That's me. Special thanks to all of my guests on this episode. To Sherard Chevalier, Jackie Weisberg, Sean Howe, who is writing the Tom Forsad biography that I now really want to read, Michael Oberman, who has a book out now about his experiences in the music industry called Fast Forward, Play and Rewind. I have read it, and I can tell you that it is worth your time. He does touch on the Medicine Ball Caravan in it as well. You can get it on Amazon.com or wherever you buy books from. Rick Willette, whose Real and Rock blog is where I first read about the Medicine Ball Caravan. You can visit his blog at RickWillettRealAndRock.com. And Javier Lieva read passages from Ron Rosenbaum's Village Voice article. Javier has a great podcast himself. It's a documentary true crime podcast called Pretend, and it is not the violent type of true crime podcast. If you have not heard it, you should rectify that as soon as this podcast finishes. You can find it at pretendradio.org or wherever you got this podcast from. Thanks to Stephen Hager for letting me use his clip from his Tom Forsad documentary, which is currently available on YouTube. Show notes with links to everything I just mentioned and resources used are available at my website, theindustrypodcast.com. You can also get in touch by sending me an email. It's dan at moviemaker.com. Someone used a one-time email address, which I did not know that was a thing, to send me a link to a Wikipedia page for something called Super Force, a ridiculous-looking TV show from 1990 that takes place in the dystopian future of 2020. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with it, but there you go. 
I'm on Twitter at the industry 13, Facebook at the industry pod, and Instagram at industry underscore podcast. Please leave me a five star review at Apple Podcasts if you liked the show. It does help with getting us a little more visibility, and it also helps with my self esteem. Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening. Back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry.